This is coming to the cross and the empty tomb and saying, Lord, I fall upon your mercies this morning. Save me, I'm a sinner. Today, like Jesus, you can rise again to new life. The question is, will you turn from your sin? Will you trust Christ? You're listening to a special message preached at the King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Man. Good morning. He is risen. Amen. So at King's Cross, we believe God is absolutely sovereign. And amen? Amen. And he cooled it off for us this morning. So that's what happened. (laughs) So welcome this morning. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Today, like every Sunday, we recognize, we remember, and we rejoice in our King, Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and death and triumphantly rose from the grave. We're thankful this morning that you're with us. If you're a guest among us, thank you for joining us. If you don't have a home church, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9 9 o'clock and 1045. The Lord agrees with that. (laughs) Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We just sang these powerful words from Charles Wesley. Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, raise your joys and triumphs high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Luke 24 is where we're going to be this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reason we gather every single Sunday on the Lord's Day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important historical event in human history. Without the resurrection, there's no hope beyond the grave. Without the resurrection, you and I would still be dead in our sins. Without the resurrection, we as Christians would be, Paul says, above all people the most worthy of pity. But Christ has risen. And as we'll see today, the resurrection was predicted in the scriptures. It was confirmed by eyewitnesses, and it was relayed to others. The empty tomb where Jesus was laid changes everything. As Christians, you and I, our lives have been completely and forever changed by Jesus' active obedience to the Father, keeping the law perfectly. Our lives have been forever changed by the teachings that Jesus provided for us about his kingdom. Our lives have been forever changed by his death at Calvary, our gracious substitute who paid the penalty for all of our sin. And because of the resurrection, our lives have been forever changed. Why? Because death no longer has dominion over us. Those who believe in him will never die. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And just for a few moments this morning, I want us to read the resurrection narrative from Luke's gospel. And we're going to see three ideas in the first 12 verses of this chapter. We're going to see death and despair, verses 1 through 3. We're going to see prophecies and promises in verses 4 through 7. And we're going to see the miracle and the message in verses 8 through 12. And it's my hope this morning that as we read and we review the resurrection story, that you and I, as believers, are gripped with the same awe, with the same wonder that those first disciples that Sunday morning had as they heard the good news. And if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ, we're so thankful that you're with us this morning. 
We want to give you a glimpse of the hope that can be yours. And we invite you, as we just sang, to come, O sinner. Those of us in Christ are no better than you. We've been forgiven of all of our sin, and we invite you to do the same. So let's begin by looking at death and despair. Sort of a heavy topic to begin with, but notice verses one through three. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the first day of the week. That's not Monday, that's Sunday. Thursday has passed, Thursday evening, the evening when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, was denied by Peter, was abandoned by his closest followers, was interrogated by the religious leaders, and lied about by false witnesses. That Thursday night has passed. Friday has come and gone. Friday, the day when Jesus was scourged, beaten, spit upon, mocked, crucified, and killed. Saturday has passed, the Sabbath day of rest for Israel, as Jesus' closest followers were stunned, sitting silently and mourning with shock, confusion, and grief. And now it's early Sunday morning, and the they of verse 1 is some women we'll be introduced to in just a moment, but they've come to the tomb with spices. Remember, the 12 were not the only followers of Jesus, the 12 disciples. There were also women, and there were also some men who secretly followed him and trusted in him as their Messiah. In those brief moments after the death of Christ and before sundown on Friday afternoon, two members of the Sanhedrin, two secret followers of Jesus, had gone to secure his body and to prepare it for burial. The first was a rich disciple named Joseph of Arimathea, and remember, he lent his family tomb for the burial. And the second was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Jesus had already met Nicodemus and had dialogued with him in John chapter 3, where he told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Both of these men would have brought the equivalent of thousands of dollars worth of burial ointment, they would have brought powder, and they would have brought spices to prepare Jesus' body for burial. The Romans would burn the dead, but the Jews would bury the dead. And so as these two men worked quickly and carefully to remove Jesus' body from the cross to prepare it for burial, they, in handling the corpse, would have been disqualified from partaking in the Jewish Passover feast because they were ceremonially unclean. The Passover, the most important celebrated Jewish feast, was about to start, and they would have been disqualified from partaking in it. And so it was believed that the Jew in the first century would have been buried with about half of your body weight in spices. They would use myrrh. They would mix it with aloe and powder. And Jesus' body, covered with this powder, covered with these linen strips, would seal the wounds and keep the body from fresh air. So just picture this moment as they're starting with his fingers and then his hands, his arms, covering his whole body in strips of linen, covering all of the folds and crevices and then filling it with spice. This is not like an Egyptian mummification process where you're embalming, but this is to slow the smell and corruption of death. I like what Sam Storm says about this moment. He says, consider his hands, his hands which healed and held and helped were now torn and cramped. 
Look at his eyes, which blazed and wept and forgave and gleamed with the joy of the Holy Spirit, are now shut tightly in death. His lips, which spoke of love, life, hope, truth, and faith, were now parched and broken. His side, at which so many had walked and found comfort, now brutally pierced. His back, that offered to carry the burdens of weary sinners, now lacerated to shreds. His knees, on which he had knelt to pray for others and to wash his disciples' feet, now bruised and battered. His feet, on which he had walked to minister, which had carried him to the lost and needy, were now torn and twisted, end quote. Now, I think it's fascinating that David in Psalm 1610 says this. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter, the apostle, picks up on this in his evangelistic sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he pointed out that in, in Psalm 16, David is prophesying about Jesus' body not seeing corruption, not seeing decay. And this was a prediction. Yes, Messiah will die, but he won't stay dead in the grave for long. Some have made the ridiculous assertion that Jesus did not die. It's called the swoon theory. And it's a, I call it the silly theory because it is silly. The idea is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just sort of passed out and then woke up later and then came out in that state and led his victi uh, disciples victoriously. Now, if Jesus did not die on the cross, he would have simply died older at an older age. And how does that motivate anyone? In other words, more to the point, how would a mutilated and tortured man suddenly embolden his followers to launch the kingdom, to teach his resurrection after he himself was on the brink of death at the hands of the government? When we say Jesus died, it's an obvious thing like St. Pastor Pilgrim likes donuts. It's an obvious thing. Jesus died. Uh, some people don't believe that truth, but we know that he died based on Pilate's order, the Roman governor ordered the leg bones of those being crucified to be broken. But as they come to Jesus, they break the criminal's legs on the left and the right. They come to Jesus and they acknowledge he's already died. As an officer, you don't disobey an order. So they could confirm he died. That, that's the second idea, is that the centurion observed the execution. He oversaw it. And Mark's gospel tells us that Pilate was surprised Jesus had died so soon. Often, it could take days for those crucified to perish. But the soldier had plunged the spear into the side of Christ and blood and water flowed. It was an indication medically that his pericardium had burst, had ruptured. And the Roman soldiers were expert executioners. They had witnessed dozens, if not hundreds, of crucifixions. They knew when someone was dead or still alive. Jesus would not have swooned past this execution or the spear. But thirdly, the burial process. Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus would have been very privy to even the slightest amount of breathing, and they would have been alert to that. No, Jesus was absolutely crucified, and Jesus absolutely died. Now, as the women come to the tomb here in verse 2, notice that it says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. These grave tombs were sealed by heavy circular stones, rolled into a channel. It would take several strong men to open it. And remember, there was also a Roman guard set to watch it. 
Now, I saw a meme yesterday that I thought was great. It said, the stone being rolled away is just one more piece of evidence that government lockdowns do not work. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> the women weren't strong enough. The disciples weren't brave enough. But when the women arrive on Sunday morning, the stone is rolled away. Matthew 28.2 tells us that it was an angel who removed it. You see, folks, the scene set before us in these first few verses is a place of death and despair. It's the ultimate reminder of why Christ came in the flesh. He came to suffer and to die in our place, but also to reverse the curse that entered the world through sin. God created this world and called it good, but mankind rebelled against God, and because of that rebellion, things are not as they should be. Life was lost in Adam, and because of that, death is now experienced by all. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There isn't a person here this morning who has not been touched by the reality of death in your household. We don't have to do a survey of hands this morning to acknowledge that statistic that death has impacted each one of us. We all have lost someone that we dearly love, some too soon, and some still this morning, you feel the sting of that loss. Additionally, there isn't a person here this morning who has the power to bypass death. Unless the Lord comes and we're changed in the twinkling of an eye, we will experience death. Death is that uninvited, unnatural guest. None of us we're expecting. The women arrive at the tomb and they're perplexed by the fact that Jesus' body was missing. And that brings us to our second idea, prophecies and promises. It says in verse 4, notice, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, these men are not just wearing fancy clothes. The gospel accounts explain these are angels. These are powerful beings that are higher in created order than man. They're mighty messenger servants of God. And whenever someone in the Bible comes face to face with an angel, almost 100% of the time, the response is absolute terror. And there's a sense of recoiling or bowing. And that's what the women do in verse 5. Notice, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a great question, isn't it? The angels are making the point that the living are not to be found among the dead. We could say it this way. Don't expect life to come from places that don't produce life. Ryan Tansky earlier this morning said he was trying to find life in the law. By, by living out the fulfillments of the law, maybe that's where life comes from. But no, David Gusick says, quote, many look for Jesus in dead things, religious traditionalism, formalism, man's rules, human effort, and ingenuity. But we find Jesus only where there's resurrection life, end quote. You see, the women arrive at the tomb hoping to continue to care for Jesus' listless body, but the angels say in verse 6, he is, not he is not here, but has risen. That sentence changes everything. He is not here, he is risen. The angels continue in verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. The angels are saying, do you remember? 
Do, do you remember back in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34, when Jesus said that we're going to go up to Jerusalem and everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished? He'll be delivered to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. It says in verse 34, but they understood none of these things. Sounds typical of the disciples. Jesus laid it out as clear as he could. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Here's how I'm going to die. But on the third day, I will rise. It's very explicit. In fact, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us at least three different occasions where Jesus flat out explains that he would be delivered to the Gentiles, he would die, he would rise on the third day. In fact, he even told them, I'll die by crucifixion. But notice that here in verse 7, how he told you the Son of Man must be delivered. Back in Luke 18, he said, this was according to the prophets. You see, the resurrection that we celebrate this morning is the fulfillment of a promise by Jesus to his disciples. But it's also a fulfillment of many prophecies in the Old Testament. Here the angel refers to Jesus in verse 7 as the Son of Man. Now, we've heard of Jesus the Son of God. That's a glorious picture of his royal Davidic lineage as the Son of the Father, Psalm chapter 2. But when we hear about Jesus as the Son of Man, this is a reference to two places in the Old Testament. Jesus used this self-designation about 81 times in the Gospels, and this is a picture of his divinity. Son of man is not only a picture of his humility, but also his divinity. It's a picture of Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel, one of God's most steadfast, faithful servants, prophets. And in Daniel, a picture of one who's been given dominion and glory and a kingship. Jesus is the Son of man. Over and over, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to rise again. But the Old Testament prophesied the resurrection as well. If you want to jot a few verses down and look these up later, the Old Testament tells us in Psalm 16, which we just read, verse 10, that he would not let his Holy One see corruption. Psalm 22, which we read on Good Friday, tells us that the one who is pierced would die and live forever. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, remember, who was bruised and crushed for our transgressions. He'd make a grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. It's, it goes on to say that his soul will make an offering for guilt and he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How is that possible apart from the resurrection? Jesus also said he would give Israel the sign of the prophet Jonah, dead, and on the third day, he'd come back. Hosea 6, 1 and 2 also speak of resurrection on the third day. But the oldest prophecy goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3:15, in the middle of the curse, God promises the descendant of Eve that this descendant would be bruised, but in his bruising, he would crush the head of the serpent. This epic crushing of Satan began at Calvary, but it was amplified with the empty tomb and it will come to completion at the end of the age. Listen, church, when I look at the scriptures, I see a God who is faithful and true, who's always kept his promises. 
It's estimated that there's north of 2,000 Old Testament predictions or prophecies that have come to pass. Not a single one made an error or by mistake. Our God is sovereign and he's good. And Jesus fulfilled what he had promised. His body is missing from the tomb on the third day because he has risen just like he said. Now, the women did remember his words as we move to this final idea, the miracle and the message, verse 8. It says, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Can you picture just for a minute their excitement? I'm sure you've gotten news that filled you with awe and thrill, and you just couldn't wait to give that news to someone else. I just need to tell my wife. Oh, she's busy. Who is she talking to right now? I need to talk to her. Or you wanted to share, relay some news with your parents or with a coworker, with a friend. Well, no news of despair turned to joy has ever come close to comparing with this moment. Now, verse 10 tells us who it was. It says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Do you think the apostles are going to receive this news? Or, well, it tells us in verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I'm actually encouraged that the disciples are often buffoons. They don't seem to ever get it until the Spirit's power at Pentecost. But here we see Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, some other unnamed women with them. And the reason this is so controversial is because in the first century, the testimony of women would not be considered authoritative. If you needed a witness to testify to a crime, you better find a man because they would dismiss a woman's testimony as invalid. Well, why then would the Bible tell us that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women unless that's exactly what happened? You see, the scriptures aren't trying to whitewash the details in order to impress others. No, they're recorded exactly as things happen. Just another indication we can place our faith in the truth of God's word. I'm thankful and I'm impressed by the women's response. What do they do? They receive and report. They aren't responsible for the reception that their message will bring. I mean, in their case, the disciples thought they had lost their minds. That's the idea of they thought it was an idle tale. They thought these women had completely lost it. And I'm sure that's maybe happened to you. When you've gone to share your faith with a family member, they just say, you've lost your mind, mom. You've lost your mind, son. But they receive and report. Church, that's all that's needed. You and I are merely messengers. We're not the creators of the story. Do you follow me? We don't need to invent anything. We don't need to improve upon the message. No, if the gospel is the food in the kitchen, you and I aren't the chefs that need to improve upon the recipe. No, you and I are simply the servers who deliver what has already been prepared. Isn't that comforting? That takes all the pressure. I don't need to do anything to improve or dazzle or make the message more spectacular. It's spectacular enough. It's changed our lives. If you've received the gospel, just simply report it to others. Receive and report. Peter adds an additional response, run. I like that. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Now, you know the backstory to Peter. We 
looked at this on Friday evening together. Peter had denied the Lord three times. And so I believe he's running out of not only excitement, but just an earnestness to want to verify if this is true. I need to see for myself. And for some of us, that is the case. We hear the news and I need to really investigate the claims of Christ myself. That was my testimony. I was out of high school and looking for Christ, running to try to seek after the truth. And I found Jesus, or more appropriately, Jesus found me. Jesus drew me to the Father by his Spirit with cords of kindness. But I think it's fascinating. Peter runs. John's gospel tells us that both Peter and John ran together. Of course, John tells everyone for all of church history that he beat Peter. Boys will be boys. What can I say? So Peter and John, they see the grave clothes lying here. The grave clothes are not torn apart as would be the case if Jesus had merely resuscitated. Remember, he has half of his body weight, probably around 100 pounds or so of linens and spices, and he'd be suffocated to death if he just came to and didn't actually resurrect. No, these are laying here in perfect order as if a body has passed out of them. And this causes John to believe and Peter to marvel. Within that same week, if you go on to read the rest of chapter 24 later today, Jesus appears to two more disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he appears to Peter and Thomas, the doubter, who said, if I could just see his wounds, then I'll put my fingers where his hands and his feet were pierced. And instead, he doesn't do that. He just looks upon his Lord and says, my Lord and my God. And he appears to the rest of the 11, and their collective despair and fear is turned into joy and boldness. Those same disciples would all go to their deaths, most of them martyrs, proclaiming that Christ has died, he was buried, he has risen, and he's ascended. The king of creation died on behalf of sinners. The son of God put on human flesh and suffered in our place. The son of man, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, whose kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. He rose triumphantly to save to the uttermost. This morning, do you know him? Have you trusted in Christ? Or do you trust in your own power to save? This morning, you may believe, I'm going to weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds, and I've been a very good person, and so God will grade my life on a scale. I've said this often, but that's the same logic as saying striking a small child with your car should be exonerable because you supported kids overseas with Compassion International. Your good deeds won't be outweighed or won't outweigh your bad deeds. The scriptures tell us that it is appointed for man to live, to die, to face the judgment. One day, someone will come to your graveside, as the women do in our text. And when you are buried in the grave, what will you say as you stand before the judge? In this life, where do you place your faith? Is it in yourself? In light of your imminent death, where do you place your hope? This morning, if you have not turned from your sin, if you've not repented and trusted Christ for salvation, the Bible says that you are dead. But today you can experience new life, new birth, spiritual regeneration by the power of Christ's resurrection. This is not you resurrecting yourself. 
This is coming to the cross and the empty tomb and saying, Lord, I fall upon your mercies this morning. Save me. I'm a sinner. Today, like Jesus, you can rise again to new life. The question is, will you turn from your sin? Will you trust Christ? Jonathan Edwards said, quote, Christ was laid in a disciple's grave. He suffered that death that belonged to us. And he was laid in our grave. He entered into the state of death in our stead. He went down into that deep pit where we were to have gone. He had no sin of his own, so he had no death of his own. It was our sin and our grave and our tomb hewed out in a rock, end quote. This morning, that empty tomb is still empty. Amen? That empty tomb changes everything. It changes history. We mark our calendars around the birth of the man who lived, died, and rose again. Someone says, well, no, it's BCE and CE. Okay, before Christ's exaltation and then Christ's exaltation. That's fine. It impacts biology. A living body has died, can be resurrected. It impacts creation. The curse that Adam brought into the world has been remedied. It impacts government. The crucified king has risen. All those who hold any sort of authority, even over your HOA, you must kiss the son and acknowledge him as the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the sovereign over all sovereigns. The empty tomb impacts every human being because we no longer have to fear death or separation from the father in hell because of our sin. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, not according to your works, not according to your family, not because you're there at King's Cross out in the rainy tent on Easter Sunday morning. No, according to his great mercy. Oh, fall upon his mercy this morning. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. Our days fearing death have finished. Our attempts to perfectly keep the law in order to be justified, those days are finished. Our enmity with the Father because of the sin of Adam's race is finished. Our striving in our own strength is finished. As we're about to sing, now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome that I receive. Boldly I approach the Father, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There's no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. Amen? Amen? The hope of the resurrection is yours in Christ this morning. Receive it and church rejoice in it. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to pray and we're going to close with that song, It is Finished, upon that cross. Father in heaven, we thank you and we worship you this morning. The king of creation who died in our stead, the grave couldn't hold him. He rose victoriously. This morning, we thank you for the triumph of the empty tomb. We thank you that we've been risen with Christ, that we no longer live, that Christ lives in us. And the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, if there are some today who have not yet repented and trusted Christ, do that work of regeneration. Lord, for those of us who have, do that work of renewal by your Spirit and remind us to rejoice and behold our Savior and King. We hail the King this morning, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.